Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. It's good to see you here in the park. It's also good to be with you who are worshiping at home online. Um, kind of what an awesome time to, to, to kind of get together a little bit and just kind of see each other. And, and also those of you who uh, continue to just faithfully join us uh, together. Um, you know, as, as I've been thinking and as we've been kind of walking through this, this series called Our Inheritance, um, I believe that this time, this season of our lives this, however long this is, I believe that, that God is very purposeful, that the purpose of this time, um, people are going to use it for however they want to use it, but the purpose of this time is that God wants us to see and evaluate our own faith. How we live, how we see God, how we see each other, how we see our place in this world. And, and, and uh, it's, been, it's been so interesting because it seems like this, this pandemic is something that's global, that, that it's not a nation against a nation, it's, it's a global thing. And you would think that, that according to the movies, I realize it was aliens in Independence Day, but, but that like united the world. Um, and it's interesting that that's not really what we see. There's not, a, there's not really a unity. There's, there's all kinds of, of thoughts and opinions. And what kind of strikes me is our, our situation today reminds me a whole lot more of the end of the book of Judges than it reminds me of Independence Day, which is kind of sad. Because at the end of the book of Judges, the, the writer says that every person did what was right in their own eyes. And, and I think we, we just have to recognize that God is so much more significant and what he wants to do in our lives is so much more than reinforce our opinions or our preferences or our thinking. And so really what, what I'm doing these, again, these, these few weeks here is sharing what God has been challenging me on and what God has been doing in me. And it's interesting because a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Hebrews chapter 10, I asked the question at the end and I, and I kind of gave everyone a kind of a, a homework assignment that, that, that my challenge was this, that, that you would look at your faith and say, what are the impurities, the things that have come into my faith that really aren't things that God, that aren't Godward focused, that, that are things that have just seeped in and created uh, weaknesses in our faith. Because what, what, what the author of Hebrews says at the end of Hebrews 10 is he says, you are in need of endurance. And when there are impurities in our faith, that actually, it, it, it cracks away at our endurance and that our faith will not endure if our faith is not pure. And so the, the assignment that I gave you was to take a serious look at your faith and say, okay, what are the things? Take a, take a ruthless look at your faith and say, what are the things that have seeped in and have characterized my faith that maybe aren't of Christ? And so I said that I would share a little bit of that. And, and so I'm still working through that, but there's four things that, that I have identified for myself that are impurities in my faith. And the first one is this, that, that, that the idea of vindication has come into my faith, that, that, that I need to be shown right to the people around me. 
Isn't that something that, that kind of God says that, you know, he'll, he'll make sure that we're, we're, we're respected and that, that we're, you know, taken care of and that those who are against him and, and, and evil or maybe have, have evil in their hearts, that they'll, they'll be kind of taken down. And, and it's this idea of, of, I want vindication now. And that's kind of something that's become maybe uh, too intertwined to my faith. The second thing that, that, I've, that I've realized that is an impurity in my faith is, is what I'm going to call the older son expectation. That, that I've done what the older son did in the parable of the son who left and the son who stayed and the father who worked through life with both of them. And, and what, what has hit me is that, that I have this older son expectation because I've made pretty good decisions in life. And when things don't go the way that they should go for me, I get pretty upset. Because I feel like I, I kind of deserve it. Because I've done the obedience thing, and I see other people who haven't done the obedience thing, and for some reason they're not having as difficult time as I am. And I, and I think that's seeped into my faith and, and, and created, created cracks in my faith. Another thing that I've, that I've realized is, is something that has, has kind of infiltrated my faith is this idea of resolution or at least hindsight that I'm okay with what God does as long as at some point he explains to me why. <laughs> do, do any of you identify with that where, where it's kind of like, God, I, I trust you, I believe that you're going to work, but, but just at some point in this process, I would like to know why this is happening. <laughs> And that there's a little bit less trust when God doesn't come through with an explanation. That somehow I'm owed that. And then the last thing that I've been kind of working through is, is I realize that, that there is an independence that has, it has been woven into my faith that isn't necessarily biblical. Because see, the biblical idea is that we are dependent on God and interdependent on each other. And there is a desire on my part to be completely independent and be able to do things myself. And, and I think, again, that comes a lot from even our culture as Americans because we can do it ourselves and we don't need anyone else. And, and, and so as I've been walking through this, I've been thinking about how that has been affecting my endurance. I think all of those things, if, if you were honest and looked at your life, hopefully you are finding some things that you are identifying and saying, how do then I weed these things out? The process of, of refining gold is that you put it under an incredibly intense fire. And when it comes through the other side, all the impurities are burned off and then there's just gold. And I think that's what God is doing with us. I believe that God is doing what he's doing now to purify your faith and my faith. And, and, and so this morning, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And, and um, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as that great faith chapter. It goes through all kinds of people throughout, throughout the ch church history and, and the history of, uh, of really humankind and, and God's interaction with them. So let me, let me start by kind of talking a little bit about even faith. What, what sounds like faith? Which definition sounds like faith to you? How about this, that, that, that faith is something that expresses a strong desire or hope for something that is not easily attainable. A desire or hope for something to happen. I mean, that could sound kind of like faith, but actually that's the dictionary definition of a wish. <laughs> um, that's probably in the Disney book. Um, but, but, but how about this? 
a strong belief based on a spiritual apprehension rather than proof. That's actually the dictionary definition of faith, which I would actually argue that's not quite the biblical definition, that faith ignores or denies proof because there is a lot of proof that God gives us that can give us assurance. And so really neither one of those things is really the biblical understanding of faith. But here's, I want to backtrack for a second, back to chapter 10. If, if you're in chapter 11, back up just a little bit to chapter 1034. And here's what, here's what the author of Hebrews says in, in 1034. He talks, about, he talks about the affliction that they've gone through. Actually, backing up to 32, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you, you surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being public, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What's interesting is you had believers who were imprisoned, others who made hard decisions to identify with prisoners, and still others to risk property joyfully. In other words, no complaining or arguing on account that they had what they believed to be a better and abiding possession that they didn't actually have in their in, like, they didn't have on their person, they didn't have actually in their current possession, but they believed they had a better and abiding possession in faith. You see, the point of faith is this. It's to produce a life that looks at the high price of love and then accepts that possibility joyfully and does what love demands no matter what. And that is exactly in step with what Jesus did. Jesus, again, we'll see, we'll see this next week, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That Jesus looked at the high price of love and then he accepted the possibility, the reality of the cross set before him and did exactly what love does. See, it's a people who risk property and even life in order to bring the love of God to others. People who are free from their own culture, cultural assumptions about style, safety, wealth, leisure, for us, the American dream. People who know there is one life to live and only what's done in the name of Jesus and the eternal welfare of others will count in the end. That's what matters. Is anything done for Jesus and, and to draw those from death to life will last or matter? You see, faith gives a foundation to the hope that is the cornerstone of a radical, risk-taking, sacrificial love. That's what faith lays a foundation for. It is so that you and I, while in so many ways we're afraid of so many things, we're frustrated about so many things, that faith is intended to be the foundation that is that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, of that radical, risk-taking, sacrificial love. We become far more than we really are. And so I think maybe a working understanding of, of faith this morning, a developing understanding of faith this morning is this, is that Faith isn't a thing. Faith is only something if it's attached to people. And so faith is a people 
who have laid hold on the future reward of joy with God in a way that makes a difference now. That we've laid hold of the future joy that we have in Christ that actually makes a difference in how we live today, how we experience each day, how we interact with the people around us, how we, how we deal with the, with the disappointments in life that come, how we engage those around us. It's not necessarily something that we'd say, oh, everything's fixed right now. It's, it's recognizing the future reward that God has, the fulfillment of what he's promised that actually makes a difference in how I live right now. And so in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1, here's what's, what, what the author writes. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of the things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so he begins by saying this. He gives the definition of faith and it's in two parts. First, it is the assurance of things hoped for. And there's part of me that doesn't really like this biblical definition. Because remember what I said about my faith, that my faith has this, this level of, of resolution that I want, that the way I feel like I'm going to be most confident in Christ is by seeing and understanding why he does what he does. But, but what, what he says here is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. If I'm hoping for something, it means I have not yet laid grasp of it. See, the assurance, is, assurance here is the nature or substance, reality or essence that faith grabs onto God so firmly that within that faith itself is the aroma of the goodness and perfection promised. Now, let me explain why, why I say it that way. Because you see, I'm, I, I like food, really like food, and I like really good food. And, and there's times that I can walk walk into a restaurant or walk down, like take a walk in my neighborhood and somebody's cooking something. And, and have you ever had that situation where you can smell what's cooking and you, can, you have a taste in your mouth, don't you? Like when you smell something really specific and you've got a taste, your mouth starts to water and you really want to eat that thing. And, and you, what's happening is you're experiencing the aroma. You're not actually eating it. You don't have it in your possession. You're not actually eating that thing but the aroma is so much, you're experiencing that aroma that you actually can, you can imagine and almost your taste buds go to work almost tasting that before it's even in your mouth. And what faith is, faith is kind of like that, is that faith actually grabs onto God and what he's promised so firmly that even though we haven't experienced certain things that he's promised yet, the aroma of those things are so strong and so experienced in our lives that even though we haven't actually experienced that physically, we can taste it. It's there. And it's, it's real. You see, faith doesn't create what we hope for. Faith spiritually seizes God and his promises. The focus of faith is not what I want, but what God promises. And so, so therefore, faith is not a one day, this will, not a one day notion, but it 
pre-experiences God in his promises as a present reality. And I think that's important to think about, this idea of of pre-experiencing. A pre-experience is that you haven't actually gone through the experience, but it's something that almost like it's a, it's a, it's a, heads up, it's a nod, it's a trailer, it's a, it's, it's a pre-experience. And so we haven't experienced the resurrection of our bodies nor the redemption of our bodies yet, but we have pre-experienced that. We know what Jesus, we know who Jesus is and what that will be like. And so we know that for certain as if we've experienced it. It's a real thing. And, and, and so, so he says, first of all, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the things that we have not yet received, but we have have interacted with the aroma or we have pre-experienced those things. And then he says, secondly, it's the conviction of things not seen. Conviction being proof or evidence or argument. That's why I think that dictionary definition of faith saying that is on, on willingness to believe something instead of proof God gives us all kinds of proof in the world around us to augment our faith. So faith is spiritually seeing or perceiving God's fingerprints on the things that he has made. Look what he says again in verse 3. He says says that by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. In other words, we see the world around us. We see that is a visible proof of God and and his goodness. And what we take by faith is that God, by his word, created all of this. That what we, it is a conviction. It is a conviction of those things that we didn't see, but we know to be true. Because we see God's fingerprints and his evidence everywhere. And so you see, the reality is that we all look at the same evidence. As human beings, we all look at the same evidence and some see God's fingerprints and others don't. Back when I was in like high school, and I think it's kind of gone through a number of, of seasons of popularity, but do you remember those, those, those pictures that look like they're just, they're just a, kind of a, a shape or, or a squiggle or whatever, but then you're supposed to stare at it? for a certain amount of time and then eventually you'll see and your eyes will focus in and you'll see a picture of like an old woman. You know what I'm talking about? Those pictures like that. And, and do you know anyone who's never figured it out? Like there's people who are kind of like, I just can't, I can't get it. I, I don't, I can't figure it out. And I think that's true of us as human beings that some people see God's fingerprints everywhere because they're there but not everyone perceives it because they are spiritually blind for whatever reason. See, here's here's my growing understanding of faith as God has walked me through this season. My growing understanding of faith is this, that faith is the pre-experiencing of God and his promises to the degree that I see God's fingerprints on everything all the time that there is nothing that happens that I don't see God's fingerprints on. Whether it's good or bad, whether it's desirable or undesirable, that I see God there and present and faithful. 
So, so he goes on after he's kind of defined this idea of faith. He goes on and, 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 and from verses 4 to 28, he talks about all of these people who, who have been kind of we see as heroes in the faith. He says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Then he goes in verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. In verse 6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive in an, as an inheritance. It says later in verse 9, it says, it says, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same process, promise. It says, 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. And, and then it goes on and it says in verse 13, catch what he says in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That goes back to the definition of faith. It says that these people that we think of, Abraham and, and Noah and all of these people and Isaac and Jacob, that they had great faith. But here's the reality. The thing that they had in common is that they never saw the resolution of what the promises were that they were hoping for. They didn't see it come to fruition. And it, but it says they saw from afar. In other words, they, they tasted the aroma of God's promises. So, so they all died with the assurance and conviction that all of God's promises were alive and for sure, for certain. In a sense, they pre-existed they pre-experienced God and his promises and saw his hand everywhere, even when they perished. And, and, so, and so we've got to think about this. How, how often do we live our faith in a way that we need to see God resolve things? And if he doesn't resolve things, we say, well, then, I, I don't know, maybe I prayed for the wrong thing or, or maybe this isn't going to happen or, or maybe God just isn't listening or, or maybe God, whatever. How often when we don't see the resolution of what we've, pray, we've been praying for, do we then say, well, I guess that's just not going to happen. God never promises that he will bring a conclusion to your prayer in your lifetime. And that's hard to hear because we are now people. But see, God is looking at the bigger picture. And just think about what he says in 13. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Like just even thinking about their, 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 their focus, their thoughts about this. They said that they recognized that this isn't their perfect good. That yes, in the beginning, God created man and woman in the garden and it was a perfect environment, but sin, sin was welcomed into that place. 
And so that this all became marred and it became infected by sin. And they recognized that even though they hadn't received the promise that, that, that God is still faithful and that their good is in another place. And then he goes on. He goes on in verse 14, he says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, that there is a, a, wonder, a wanderlust in us, that, that we're seeking a place that we truly belong and it will never be here. Because the fulfillment of ultimate belonging, the promise that God made is not for now. It's for us to grab onto and hold onto and, and taste the aroma of but we don't get to have the meal until we stand before Christ. And so then he says, if they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And now listen to what he says in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. When it says that, that they, think about this, when, when, when it says there that they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, that's just like what he says in, verse, in chapter 10 when he says they had a better possession and an abiding one. They were waiting for a better country, a heavenly one. And, and so as we, as we see this idea of faith and how that plays into our lives today, in verse 16, it says that they desired a better city. They saw that part of the promise to be fulfilled was in the future and that they had faith that God would do that even if it took their entire lives. Critical to faith is the recognition that you and I are exile, strangers, or refugees in this land. That is critical to have a faith that is persistent, that endures, that will last, that is not filtered by impurities. And, and understand when we talk about this idea that, that we have to recognize that we are exiles in this place, it doesn't mean that it somehow cancels out us being citizens of whatever country we're in. Because you see, here's the thing. I love our country, and I think from my vantage point, all countries have incredibly, incredible things to overcome, and no country is a country that sees God as king. <laughs> but as far as countries go, I think we live in a pretty good one. And I'm really thankful that I live here. And there's a lot of things that frustrate me about our country, there's a lot of great things about our country. But here's the thing. Which citizenship that I live under has the final say or the most influence over my behavior and the rights that I choose to exercise? Is it, is it America or is it the kingdom of heaven? Because if the kingdom of heaven does not dictate my behavior and the 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 use of my rights, the expression of my rights, then I don't know if my faith will endure. Because when it comes down to it, my heavenly citizenship must inform my American citizenship, not the other way around. 
And, 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 so, and so here's, here's one of the most incredible things that God said, that he says in verse 16. It says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Think about that for a second. If God's not ashamed to be called their God, it means that there is a possible way that God could be ashamed to be called their God. It says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because he prepared a city for them and they desired that city more than what was around them. The trappings and the conveniences and the comforts around them. They desired the city that God prepared for them more so than what they currently experienced. That their treasure was in that city. Their hearts treasured that over all the world has to offer. And so the question is this, do you and I, do we want God to not be ashamed of being our God? Because I think there's times that, that we behave in a way, and I don't know how this works, but God's kind of like, oh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I can't believe they just did this. Man, it's almost like I'm ashamed that I'm their God. I don't want to be associated with them. But you know how God is not ashamed to be our God? It's actually pretty simple. It's not because we have great accomplishments. It's not because we've achieved great high moral achievements. It's simply to desire what God has prepared for you. To be grateful for what God has for you. To love God over all of the other things that vie for our love. The city of God over the city of men. Heaven over earth. God over everything else that's not God. And sometimes what that means for you and I, it means this obedience feels like the end of a dream because we all have things that we want for ourselves. And sometimes to obey and say, God, what you want rather than I want is the death of a dream. And I think about how my dream has been dying. That there's all these things that I wanted for myself but not all those things happened. And the hits just keep coming. And I realize that my dream has to die in order for me to truly experience and desire what God has prepared for me. Faith sees the promises of God from afar and experiences a change of values so that I desire the promises above all that the world has to offer. Finally, in verses 39 and 40, actually, we'll, we'll skip down. He, he talks through the rest of this. He talks about all of these different people. He, he goes on and he talks about Moses. He talks about he talks about all of these different people. He talks about, he says, it, I don't even have time to talk about everyone. He says, for people like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Then he says this, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And that, up to that point, everyone's good with that, right? Everyone's like, yes, I like that. I'm in on that lifestyle. But then it turns really dark really fast. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. 
so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went out about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and the mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. That's the part that I'd like to skip. But you see, that is the corporate experience of those who have chosen to surrender to Jesus and given up their dream and desire God's dream for them. And then finally in verse 39, it says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here's the thing that this great faith chapter has in common with all these people, is that none of them received what they were promised. Because faith is the assurance of what's hoped for and the confidence of what's not seen. You see, faith is forward-facing in that God's promises are always ahead of us. That God's promises are always bringing us forward. And there's this thing that it says, and this is such a cool thing. It says in verse 40, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. This is so cool. The final perfected result of salvation of everyone who has surrendered to Jesus and gone before us, things like resurrection of the body, the reign of Jesus in the new earth, restoration of all things, all of those things will not happen without all of God's family at home and present. Here's what's so cool about that. And here's when it says they did not receive apart from us, they've not been made perfect. It's saying this, that, that all of those who belong to Jesus have not arrived home yet and everyone is waiting in God's household because God says, I won't start this without them. How many of you have been like waiting for family to get home for some kind of big event, a holiday or dinner and, and somebody's late and you're kind of like, no, I'm going, I'm, we're just going to eat without them. But somebody who has authority in the home says, we're not starting until everyone's here. And that's exactly what God says. He says, I will not bring all of the promises to fruition until everyone's home. And so there are those who've gone before us who are waiting. They're saying, God, we want to eat. And God's saying, no, 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 the banquet doesn't start until Becky gets home. I mean, that's not a prediction, Becky, okay? Like, that's not, <laughs> I don't know anything, <laughs> But God's not going to start until we're all together in his household. And that's when our faith became, becomes sight in the presence of all the people of God. No one gets the glory of final perfection until everyone arrives home. You see, that's, that is the ultimate accomplishment of faith is arriving home and participating in all that God has prepared for us. So what has God been doing in me? 
First of all, there's a revelation that he's given me about me, and I think it probably is applied to the church. And when I say revelation, not in a prophetic sense, not adding anything, I'm saying revelation being something that wasn't known before. But that's this, the revelation is this, that I think our faith is tethered at too many points. I think our faith is tethered at too many points. We as fallen human beings have tethers to all kinds of things in life that are pulling us different directions. They're not all bad and they're not all good, but we cannot flex in all directions. That there's a reality that when we surrender to Jesus, we must intentionally disconnect from all the tethers and tether only to the anchor of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why our lives today aren't like Independence Day. Because we are not just tethered to Jesus Christ, but we are tethered to our rights. We are tethered to our fears. We are tethered to our, per, our preferences. We are tethered to our comforts. We are tethered to our style. We are tethered to all of those things. That's why we don't see a unity in the church because we are tethered to too many different things. Biblical faith and my faith, unfortunately, as I've, as I've looked, it looks kind of different. I want to know and I want to see resolution, but God says, no, no, your faith is, is, has to endure because what you might have in common with all those who have gone before us is that they didn't receive what they were promised, but they saw it from afar and they were commended as righteous. So the questions that I would, I would suggest to you this morning is this, is my faith dependent on experiencing fulfillment now? Is my faith dependent on getting answers? Is my faith dependent on this whole mess that's been created by a virus and by systems and by individuals who are grasping for power? And I don't, if I don't see the resolution of this, does that make, what does that do to my faith? Am I tethered to my way of life before the virus? Or am I tethered to Jesus and Jesus only? Second question is this, what is my faith tethered to other than Jesus? What are those tethers that are pulling me? Second thing is this. The revelation is our faith is tethered to too many points. This, the action that, that I believe that I need to take and that maybe we need to consider is this. Jesus with me and for me must be enough. Jesus with me and for me is enough. No matter what else happens, no matter what else goes down, Jesus with me and for me is enough. I was listening to a pastor last week. He was talking about all these kind of crazy things going on in the world. And then he said this, which, which really concerned me. He said, if I was not assured of a pre-tribulation rapture in Scripture, then I would be terrified right now because I don't know how I would live through that. Here's the problem with that statement is that a pre-tribulation rapture, for those of you who don't know, is, is one of the possible 
timelines of a biblical rapture that's talked about in Scripture. But it's not the only one. And we're not actually assured that as believers, we won't face the tribulation. We're not assured of that. It's one of actually three, actually probably now about six, because there's lots of variations of end times thought. But there's a lot of variations to it. We are not assured of that. But here's what was interesting, and here's what scared me about what that pastor said. He said, if I wasn't assured of pre-tribulation rapture, then I would be terrified right now. You know what that's saying to me? That his faith is tethered to a, to a certain theology that must be true for him because Jesus isn't enough. How many things in my life, in our lives, uh, are tethers that if those things aren't true, that Jesus isn't enough? You see, here's the question. Are there things that could take place that you would say, this is it, I'm out. I don't think I can do this anymore. If, if, what could I lose that would make me question my faith? Because deep down in the darkness inside of me, there's things that I'm holding on to that I've said, God, this is off limits. And if you touch this, we're going to have a fight. I mean, I don't like my chances in that fight. But if you were honest, is that true for you? Is there something that you'd, you would say, you know what, God, just don't touch this. What, what could I gain that would make, make me ask Jesus to hold off on his plan? What could I gain in life that would make me say to Jesus, I want you to hold off? Second question in related to this action of Jesus with me and for me must be enough is this. How can I adjust my heart so that it treasures Jesus above all and keeps its focus forward? Is my faith pure and truly tethered to Jesus alone? And if it is, then it doesn't matter how long this takes. My faith will endure. You see, you and I have a better and an abiding possession and we have examples of those who have endured to remind us that it's worth it that it's absolutely worth it. So this morning and this week, I would challenge you to think about what your faith is tethered to. Because if we get to the other side of, of the season that we're in, and if we haven't had a long, hard look at our faith as individuals and our faith as a body, then I hate to think of what God's gonna throw at us next for us to evaluate our faith. And here's the good news, is that God is with us and he's for us. And just like all of those that we see in Hebrews 11, we will experience the feast and the banquet, but it won't be till we're all home. But don't worry, because it won't start without you. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we come before you this morning and I thank you so much for your love and the way that you work in us. God, I thank you that we can continue to worship in different ways and hear your word no matter where we are, no matter what's going on. God, I thank you for the, this morning and the coolness of the air and the breeze. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our faith in a true light 
and that, God, we will grow and mature so that we think like Jesus rather than think like us. God, I thank you for this morning, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.